You know, you read the Old Testament, you'll see a number of passages that are pretty critical of, it uses the word princes of Israel, pretty critical of the people who really make the decisions in, in the nation of Israel. And of course, that was Old Testament times, but if it is, we have any, any understanding about prophecy and its duality, that applies today. And it says they're very, very eager to take bribes. That's mentioned repeatedly. Now, I have here a, a publication entitled Acres USA. Acres USA, and um, it's a publication that deals primarily with just farmers and uh, various information for them. I don't think it's uh, one of these conspiratorial rags. Um, but anyway, it's got an article here. I thought it was rather interesting. I, um, I want to read this first one first here to you. It de yeah, it deals with, with organics. Uh, organic farming primarily is what it deals with. But I'll, I'll just start out by reading this one, then you'll see the connection later on. Increased profits for big business are offset by disaster for Mexico's farmers, a noted economist maintained in a talk given in Tucson last month. There have been losers, and there have been big losers, and they are the Mexican people. Uh, Mexican farmers who grow corn, beans, and wheat for food and some extra cash um, are among those hit hardest by NAFTA. And you remember we all heard what NAFTA was going to do for everyone, didn't we? Going to be a big a boom and help everybody. Um, because they can't compete with large U.S. grain producers who are government-subsidized. Mexico's getting poor. The purchasing power of the Mexican wages is falling. The concentration of wealth among the very rich is increasing. And there are no jobs being created. And that's probably one reason you have so many illegal aliens coming across the border all the time. Now, coincidentally, he said a growing number of rural Mexicans have been forced to migrate to U.S. cities or to the United States since NAFTA took effect. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to read sections here. I just marked portions of them here because yeah, the pages, you can see the size of these pages. It's almost a good, a good size small print, almost like a, if it were size newspaper print, it would be about a newspaper sheet, and it covers four pages. But uh, I just uh, marked certain sections here, and then I want to build a sermon around this, and I'm going to entitle this sermon, The Powers That Be. The Powers That Be. Now, this particular article is entitled The Shadow Economy, and um, it's an a, a interview with a lady by the name of Joan Vion. Joan Vion, V-E-O-N. She's a journalist, and uh, her upscale task is to deliver to Americans a sad truth about what is happening to the Constitution, the oligarchs in, in waiting, and her determination, the scope of the One World Plan, and in her determination to understand the global level and what it really means. She has covered over 63 UN and UN-related conferences, which include economic, political, environmental, military, peacekeeping, legal, trade, and financial topics. She is credentialed through the USA Radio Network in Dallas, and she's interviewed presidents and prime ministers, key UN, IMF, World Bank officials, Bank for International Settlement officials, Bank of England officials, high officials throughout the Clinton and the Bush administrations, multinational, transnational CEOs, and many who understand the global agenda and what it relates to local life. So based on these credentials, uh, credentials, you can see that she's pretty well informed. Now, uh, the question, Acres, which is the magazine I'm reading from, the um, one who's interviewing her, he asks a question and she gives an answer. And uh, she's asking, he's asking about uh, this disconnect between what is taking place and what we're told. And uh, she said, could you uh, unscramble some of this, uh, these, uh, this inventory, invent, inventory of characters for us? And she says, a little bit. I've been covering global meetings for the last 10 years. To date, I've covered 66 global meetings around the world on every continent except Asia. And I just returned from covering the IMF World Bank meeting in Washington, where the um, big boys have started a process of implementing global taxes. Now, if you've been following the news any, you've been hearing about that. They're now testing the idea, and they're going to start with a $1 per ticket tax on international airline 
flights. Now, she said, uh, she explains it's going, to, it isn't, it's going to be used for them, it isn't going to be used for anybody else. Now, who are the power players? Well, she mentioned certain ones, and then she says here, I don't believe there is currently any president or prime minister or ruler in any country who rules just because he happened to get elected. Now, I'll give you a case in, uh, of, of our, our present president. Remember, he ran as a conservative, didn't he? Now, on some issues, of course, he is conservative because he's, he's uh, held a line on certain moral issues, that's for sure. But economically, he's, he's been one of the greatest spenders we've had there. He's, 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 he's really a liberal when it comes to spending money. Anyway, she says here, uh, we, are, we are in a world without borders, a world government system. So it's already here. See, it's just being implemented gradually over a period of time, and we're all going to be victimized by it eventually. That's what it's, she's pointing out here. Now, she says, Akers said, well, let's, let's explore a little bit further here. This is G8. Is there any, any, any evidence that G8 will eventually overtake and set aside the United Nations? Here's what she says. I have written about a this on a number of occasions because basically what we have here is a group of eight and that they have four permanent members on the Security Council. The only member they don't have is China. And there are steps to broaden the group of eight which will now be called an organi organization of D20. And um, one thing that's very interesting, um, I looked it up the other day on uh, her website and uh, they, she was giving the facts here. There are only 10 of these, of these nations, only 10 of them, who are, are permanent members. Now, what's that 10 say to you? Isn't that 10 a significant figure? Well, we'll see. I'm not saying that's it, but I'm saying we'll see. Anyway, um, we have these 20, which includes not only G8, but also many of the emerging developing countries, such as China, India, Brazil, Australia, New Zealand, and a number of other developing countries. As such, you have on the G20 all five members of the Security Council, which means, of course, why do you need the United Nations? It's purposeless now. Um, I raised this question at the G8 meeting. They laughed. What you have is United. What you have with the United Nations is really a major secretariat. In other words, they're a clearinghouse. They're they're one that uh, that does all the manipulating and checking all the committees and everything. But they, the, the United Nations itself isn't really running things because it's being run by, the, by these security members, members of the Security Council, who all belong to G8. She said, when you look at the UN structure, there are many organizations, many commissions, many councils. And when you go to their website, it's an absolute maze. And when you start uh, taking a look at the general sort of just done and the laws they have, they have passed, all of them comprise international law. That's changing the whole structure of the world. And that's what's happening to us. We'll, we'll see it as, as it develops on down the line. Um, she said, over the past 10 years, I've been an eyewitness to a lot of the UN creep. In other words, it's just gradually creeping. It's called the old salami method. And um, I remember being in a meeting which someone suggested there was a territory called Global Commons. Global Commons. So I raised my hand and asked what the term meant, and they answered, that compromises the oceans and the seas that are a certain distance out from the territory of a country, and it is all the surface of the oceans that is not governed by anyone. So what are they claiming? They're claiming they're going to, they're, in other words, I'm not saying all of these things are impl implemented yet, but this is, these are in the plans. They're, they're actually going to take control of all the oceans that are not and, you know, by national agreement, our, our uh, ocean territory goes out, what is it, 13 miles? Some 12 miles, I guess. Then after, and that's true of every country, all the rest of it's going to belong to the United Nations. They're going to control it. Now, uh, that comprises the oceans and seas that are a certain distance from the territory of a country, and it's all the surface of the oceans that is not governed by anyone. It also has to do with the atmosphere and space and outer space. And um, she says here, the United States is one of the few countries not to pass. You see, if, you remember, if, if you've been following the news, did you hear the, the argument that was going on over the law of sea treaty? 
and it was uh, not passed by the United States. Here's what she says. The United States is one of the few countries not to pass the Law of the Sea Treaty, which would set in place a whole new UN structure over the oceans and the seas and allow the United Nations to make money by charging fees to anyone who wants to mine the ocean. And uh, let me give you some research that I've put together. And uh, she's referring here to the National Security Study Memorandum 200. And um, she said in her first uh, conference, um, this was introduced, and the purpose was to meet to reduce the population of the world. They did not give the percentage of that meeting, but in a subsequent meeting, the first Gorbachev State of the World Forum, there was a speaker who said that the population has to be reduced by two-thirds. Now, where have we heard that before? If you know anything about the French Revolution, what was the terror during the French Revolution? The French people came under the control of the Commune. The Commune was what we would call a radical communist outfit. We didn't call it that in those days, but that's what it's called now. And what was their aim and purpose? They wanted to have a more equal distribution of wealth throughout France. So they determined they had to reduce the French population by one-third. They killed thousands and thousands of people during that, that time the Commune was in power. So here we see a repeat, don't we? Well, I'm just telling you what it looks like. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. But anyway, it's, it's rather interesting. And uh, then Akers asked, how's that going to be done? She said they're going to do it through AIDS, disease, starvation, euthanasia, and the right to die with dignity. Now, you take this state of Oregon, for example. What is it? It's a leader in this right to die with dignity, isn't it? Isn't it? euthanasia deaths. Now, she says, uh, Akers says here, they used to teach at West Point a book that's called Raw Materials and War and Peace. And uh, this um, Mrs. Miss or Miss Ms. Vion, whatever it is, she says, uh, that's exactly what NSSM 200 is all about. That's what I just read to you here, the National Security Study Memorandum 200. She says here, um, they basically identified key developing countries that had the strategic minerals we needed. They noted that these countries had large populations, and if the populations got larger and these countries developed, they would be the ones who would need the resources. Therefore, the bottom line was to ensure that these countries never developed and that they reduced their populations and kept them low so the United States could take advantage of their mineral resources. Um, then she goes on to say here, she mentions Robert McNamara. Now, some of you younger folks might not remember him, but he was very instrumental in the Vietnam War. And uh, they said he was one of the most brilliant men they ever had in, in the, in the, uh, as a presidential advisor, and his mind was just like a computer, and he could just rattle off numbers by the, by the hundreds just over and over, and, he, and it had everything statistically demonstrated. Of course, it failed. But uh, after he left, uh, after the disaster in Vietnam, he went to the World Bank. And he was instrumental in creating the mess that the highly indebted poor countries are in today. None of the projects of the World Bank forced on third world countries have, have, to develop have ever turned out. They all became white elephant loans, and their loans are now in the backs of these third world countries. Now, here we hear all the time, don't we? They pour millions and millions and millions of dollars into these countries, and now every so often they have to give them death, re death relief, don't they? Well, listen to this. At one meeting of the IMF I attended, they were talking about debt relief, and I asked them to explain the mechanics of it. She said, are you talking 100% debt relief, partial debt relief? Uh, will there be a debt for equity swap? What will happen? What are the mechanics? Uh, well, they wouldn't touch on the topic as debt for equity swap, which uh, is a very common practice that's been done with other projects. And uh, when you start uh, researching these projects, you can't help but seeing the, the uh, robbing and the pillaging of the people on the earth, and this even includes America, in America. Now, continuing uh, over here, there's some very interesting comments. She says here, um, what are the benefits from the trade, the big ones, uh, that uh, are the ones big enough to take on uh, the global level of trade? It's not going to affect the uh, average citizen except on the expropriation end, is it? 
And she said, that's right. The organization that I think about of all the groups that we just talked about is the Bank for Inter International Settlements. Now, again, if you've been knowledgeable and watching what's going on, you're familiar with the Bank of International Settlements. To understand, we must begin at the point where America lost her sovereignty, and that, of course, was in the federal, when the Federal Reserve Act was passed. Now, going on to down the line here. He's talking about the Bank of International Settlements, and she said the current manager is Bill White, and I think he's an honest man, but I don't think he understands everything that he's a part of it. Uh, he writes a tremendous economic report. However, the Bank of International Settlements, they control the monetary system of the world, and that should say it all. Furthermore, several years ago, the Bank of International Settlements set up a new organization called the Financial Stability Forum. Now, you just mark these things in your mind, and when you're listening to the news, you know, you hear these names come up. People don't know what they're really doing here. It was designed to protect the international economic infrastructure. And um, it basically is a globalization. Now, here, hear this now. Globalization of the U.S. Treasury, the Federal Reserve, the controller of the currency, the FDIC, along with all other central banks and other key bank organizations. They're under control of a global system. There are six international financial institutions, seven regulatory and supervisory groups, which would include the FDIC, the controller of the currency, and the European Central Bank, which now have the power to control the international monetary system. Um, what are you describing, then, is a complex world with a lot of disparity, Akers asked, and uh, that disparity is soon going to be visited on the United States, probably reducing its standard of living by 50%. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Now, I remember uh, back in the 50s, I, I called the 60s the golden age of the Worldwide Church of God, the period of the 60s. And uh, then after that, they did begin to decline in the early 70s because of what was going on. But uh, the standard of living was was pretty good then, and a fellow that we knew had, we knew of later, he had gone and lived in Australia for about 10 years. And he came back and he stopped by to visit us over here in Eugene, and uh, he's from Holland, and uh, he said he was just absolutely shocked at the decline in our standard of living from the time he was here in the 60s and the time he came back in the 80s. Shocked at it. And you know, we're not even aware of it, are we? Just like, this is like when it creeps up on you slowly, like the old um, method where you put the frog in the pan and start heating it. Anyway, she says here, um, she goes on here, I wonder, there's one really important one here I want to I comment on, uh, if I can find it here. It's giving an example here of uh, the, the, these organizations. Um, when they include these organizations, in the, like the British Commonwealth, for example, uh, here it is, I did some research on the British Commonwealth, and I found that it has, it has 54 countries. Now, now, see, here we're talking about the voting capacity in these systems, which means they have the potential of 54 votes in the United Nations. And they operate at every level internationally. In the G8, the Commonwealth has two votes. America has one. In the G7 finance ministers, the Commonwealth has two votes. For Canada and the UK, UK and the United States has one. Uh, Commonwealth members, and in the World Trade, uh, Trade Organization, there are 46. In the World Bank, there's 44. In the G20, there are five Commonwealth members with a potential of five votes to America's one. Now, what's that tell you? If we're going to comply with that system, who's going to be making the decisions? So, in our hemisphere, with the free, free trade area of the Americans, they, Americas, they have 13 votes to our one. Furthermore, every time the United Nations, the World Bank, and, and the WTO form a committee, they rotate the presidency, and that means that Britain will have the presidency 25% of the time. Now, that tells you a whole lot more than what you see on the surface, doesn't it? In uh, January, and we mentioned here about this uh, world tax going on, in January at the World Economic Forum, Chirac again put global taxation on the table, and this idea was very positively received by the world leaders and the CEOs in attendance. 
Chirac presented what he called the International Solidarity Levy, which would put anywhere from $1 to $10 a tax, $1 to $10 a tax on airline tickets. There are 3 billion airline tickets sold per year, which would raise anywhere from 3 to $30 billion a year. Yeah, that's just the start. You haven't heard anything yet. I asked President Chirac if this tax would, tax would be enacted, would there be more? Uh, more international solidarity levies, and he told me they had many more taxes planned. Now, you see, I don't know how long this is going to go on, see, and how fast it's going to take place. But it's already taking place before our eyes, and we don't, most of us don't even realize what's going on. Uh, Akers asked her, is this money basically going to run the G8? She said, no. This money is supposedly going to use to help the UN meet their Millennium Development Goals. It's very, very important that people understand this. The Millennium Development Goals were established in 2000 by the UN, and they re include reducing poverty by 50%, reducing hunger by 50%, giving people around the world clean water and sanitation, giving every child basic education, alleviating AIDS by 50%, improving the lives of 200 million slum dwellers around the world, and the UN estimates that this will cost $50 billion a year. Now, to see how ludicrous this is, the entire UN budget for 1994 was only $10.5 Now, where are they going to come up with all that money? These taxes. So, that's the justification. Uh, they're going to solve all the world's problems, and that's the justification for the global tax. Um, they have, uh, you know, created the poor through corrupt economic policies. One-third of the highly indebted poor countries in the Commonwealth, and this is based on creating a perpetual poor, so the world now needs to justify a global tax. Uh, this meeting was historic for this reason. It connected another historic fact. Rock stars were allowed into the center where the G8 meters were meeting, a place where nobody else could get in other than the Queen, but Bob Geldor from Bono had individual meetings with each of the world leaders. So uh, they're being used instrumentally in some manner to influence the public opinion about this whole thing. Now, I think that that pretty well covers what I want to say here. Uh, one interesting thing, though, I've noted over the years that when one of these global meetings is scheduled, a week, a month, two months before the meeting, something astonishing happens somewhere in the world. It just happens to coincide with the agenda they want to fulfill. Uh, this is happening in the same, uh, same country as the conference. The Queen hosted the dinner Wednesday evening, which was the opening of the G8 meeting. Thursday morning, the bombers occurred. Bombings occurred, and for the most part, covered, covered the bombings, and there was a complete blackout regarding G8. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? So I'm just saying, uh, keep your eyes open. We don't um, exactly um, know just merely, merely the tip of the tip of the iceberg, but it gives you some insight into, into what is, uh, the Bible certainly indicates what's going on, and that's why I've entitled this The Powers That Be. Now, I'm going to just base this whole sermon today on Revelation 18 chapter, because that's the chapter that's, that spells it out pretty well. I have two other little articles here. I just want to read some sections from them, but I'll save them and I'll hopefully, hopefully to the uh, appropriate place. We read here in Revelation 18, I, uh, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory, and he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Now this is mentioned in the Old Testament. I'll refer some, to some of those Old Testament passages. But by the same token, remember those Old Testament incidents, many of those things were a type, and the antitype was fulfilled in the latter days. And here we're talking about the latter days, and we're talking about Babylon, aren't we? And we're talking about a fallen. And it has become the dwelling place of demons, a spirit for every, uh, prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hatred bird. Now, let's go back to Revelation 16, verse 19. We'll see some parallel scriptures. Revelation 16, verse 19. That great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell apart. What is that great city? What does this Babylon really represent? 
what are we really talking about here? Well, uh, when we wrote the article on the Gnostic Connection, or say this is a book is what it ended up, the Gnostic Connection, we point out there were a number of facets of what we would call Babylonianism. And economic, uh, economics is a very, very important part of it. So is religion. I'll mention those two today. There's also the military aspect of it, the social aspect of it, and so on and so forth. So uh, I don't know what it means. Actually, the term here actually means it means this great city because it says here, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So God's wrath is being directed toward this, this system, this, this Babylon, whatever it, really, whatever it really is. In Revelation 14 and verse 8, Another angel followed, and here we find uh, this is called the, the second, the third, the three, the third angel message. This is the second one, and what he says: Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So we see here that there's some pretty explicit things said here about this uh, this Babylon. There's a couple of texts here we can quickly look at in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 51 and uh, verse number 1. I took a little time to read that material to you at the start because I wanted you to get the picture of what's taking place there. Now, when you, if you if you tie it, look at the Bible and see what's in the Bible, you can certainly see there, there certainly seems to be a parallel in every way. Jeremiah 51 and verse number 1 here we read, uh, this is a message to Babylon. It says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon. So here's a whole chapter that's devoted to this, uh, this Babylonish, Babylonish system. And then in verse number 37, just a brief text here, Babylon shall become a heap, a dwelling place for jackals, an astonishment of hissing without inhabitant. Almost uh, parallels what we read back here a few minutes ago in the book of Revelation. I want to keep a bookmarker here in Revelation, in Revelation 18 because I'll be referring to it uh, as, as the basis of, of everything I'm going to be stating here later on. But uh, let's notice now uh, Isaiah 14 and verses 4 through 7. Isaiah 14 verses 4 through 7. How the oppressor has ceased. And if you'll notice verse number 4, it says here, Take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, who ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted, and no one hinders. So we're looking at a power here. The type, of course, was was Babylon, the, the ancient nation of Babylon, but the antitype is right here complaining in Revelation for the last days. You see, it's doing the same thing. In fact, it could, this article, I couldn't read it all to you, but it points out how they virtually gain control of all these poor nations through their economic systems, and there's absolutely no way those people are going to be freed and, and, and relieved of it. And you wonder why. You take Africa, for example. There are, there are countries down there, their, their population has already been reduced by a third by AIDS. So, we see here in, in, in Isaiah here, um, another a very strong hint. Now, if we go back to Revelation 18, verse number 3, we'll read through verses 3 through 5. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. I just read that from earlier text in Revelation, didn't I? The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the inhabitants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxuries. Now, we've always taken that to refer to religion. But I want to point out, I don't think uh, the largest, most powerful church in the world today is going to have everybody live luxury, luxuriously because of what she does. So we have to equate this not only with a religion, and I'll point that out in a little bit here, we also have to equate ec economics is a very, very important factor in this whole thing. Economics. So, as we read here, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So God's people are, are in it. 
Now, some people have, have taken this to mean that, that even if you're part of the world, you're, you know, you've got to disassociate yourself from the world. So they go off to some places and place and build themselves a little uh, camp, and uh, they're, they're coming out of the world by that way. Well, what Jesus said, you know, you're in the world, but you're not a part of it. Now, we're looking at something here. Are we looking at an economic system that involves God's people? I'm talking about the physical people of Israel. I just read to you how, how very, very dominant England is in this whole system along with all of its various commonwealth countries. Have more votes all the way around than the United States does. Now let's go back to um, Jeremiah 51 verse 6. Jeremiah 51 verse 6. Flee from the midst of Babylon, and everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. Yeah, that's fine. What did God say? You better come out of her, lest you receive her plagues. Now, I don't think for one moment the physical leaders who, who rule the world, and even who rule this country, and who dominate uh, all the economics in the world are going to come out because they read this scripture. Well, I can... If that's the case, you can be sure they will receive the God's plagues. Psalm 50, you know, here's, here's the practices. Here's the kind of practice that goes on. This is, this, is a, this is how we have deluded ourselves so very much. And even in this country, you know, they're making a big issue right now and squabbling over the matter of uh, these uh, stores um, not saying Merry Christmas. And uh, there's, a, there's a various... Um, group of people who are really upset about it and, 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 and they, they think that it's just terrible if they don't say Merry Christmas anymore. Well, the fact is we make this big pretense of religion and yet what are our economic practices? Well, let's notice it here. I, uh, Psalm 50. Psalm 50 and verse, verses 16 and uh, through 18. Here's what the wicked says. Here's what God says to the wicked. What right have you to declare my statutes? So, you know, we call ourselves a Christian and we like to think we're Christian people and we're upholding the truth, you know, and we're somehow righteous before God. Or take my covenant to your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him. You've been a partaker with adulterers. You've given your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your own brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I've kept silent. And you thought I was all the other like you. That's the way a lot of people think today. They can get away with all these things. Nothing happens to them. Certainly God must not be angry, right? Well, they better go back here and read Revelation 18. Because it's very plain what's going to happen. Now let's go to verse 6 here. Render her to her just as she has rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. Let's notice Jeremiah 50, verses 14 and 15. Jeremiah 50, verses 14 and 15. Put yourselves in array against Babylon all around. All you who shoot the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she sinned against the Lord. Shout against her all around. She has given her hand. Uh, her foundations have fallen. Her walls are thrown down, for it is vengeance of the Lord. You know, people get all upset because, um, and it's, it's a pretty sad thing what the judicial system is in our country today. And uh, people, you know, they really get upset and want to take matters in their own hands. But what does God say? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Vengeance belongs to God. And I, it makes no difference who you are or what you've done. You will answer for it, either for good or bad. And that's inevitable. Revelation 13, verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed by the sword. That's the penalty. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And, uh, you know, their greed, the greed of the, of the powers that be in this world, and I just read some examples there from 
this article uh, that um, Acres USA had uh, had uh, given. And uh, here's a good example of what I'm talking about. Let us notice here in James 5, verses 1 through 6. Howl now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming on you. They are coming. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, their corrosion will be a witness against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up treasures in the last day. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields, which you kept back from fraud, cry out. And she cries to the, the reapers, have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You know, there's an article in the paper yesterday, I believe it was. I don't know if you saw it. It was on the business section right on the bottom of the page. And it was describing the living wage in the Northwest. And the living wage, the average living wage in the Northwest is not enough to make even support one person well. And then it goes on to list various amounts that were needed. And for a family of two and two children, they needed uh, to make $28 an hour. And this area here is one of the lowest paying areas in the country. The whole Pacific Northwest, including Montana and uh, Oregon, Washington, and, and, uh, they didn't mention Wyoming, but it's probably in the same category. Now, why is that? Well, there are a number of reasons. I don't blame it all together on the uh, employers because of the the heavy tax burdens and expensive things that goes on with them. But the whole system is so askew that what do you have here? You have a whole, a whole labor force that is underpaid and overworked. They ought to read James here. This is what the, this is a society today. You're making $10 an hour here. If you're a person and you don't have an education and you're working on a regular job, $10 an hour, that's a pretty good wage. It's not, not enough to support a family. Certainly not, not enough to support one or more, much more than one person. And it describes what the necessities of, our, of life that is required. And it, it isn't anything exorbitant. In fact, it, even, it doesn't even consider the setting aside money for, for a, or investing in anything for a, for a future retirement. That's Babylon. That's what it is. Revelation 18, verses 7 and 8. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxury, in the same measure give to her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and I will see no sorrow. So here you see, beginning in verse 8, Therefore her plagues will come on her in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. Standing at the distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment is come. Now let's just consider something here. I said earlier here, and there's probably some other scriptures down the line here that'll, that, that, that will define this, but I said earlier here, we have to look, we, ha we certainly have to look at the world's economic system. But what about religion? What part is religion going to play in it? Well, let's notice a comment here. Uh, this one here is um, from um, Insight Magazine, reported in October 2000. United Nations plans to build a global religion. Now, we've read about that, smatterings of it here and there, haven't we? Bawa Jain, Secretary General of the Millennium Peace Summit, says he thinks all religions and spiritualists, as well as the sort of witch doctors, shamans, medicine men, draw their wisdom from the same source. As host of the UN's Millennial Peace Summit of Religious and Spiritual Leaders, he told the international meeting of 1,000 delegates that religions need to accept the validity of all beliefs to attain world peace. The summit, the first of its kind, sponsored by the United Nations, held in New York City just before political leaders gathered for the UN Millennium Assembly. The timing was perfect, says Jane, as it allowed religious leaders to update their political counterparts on how to usher in the new peace 
and uh, bring about, brought about through religious universalism. What is the final shape this thing is going to finally take? According to Francis Cardinal Arens, president for the Interreligious Dialogue of the Vatican and speaker of the summit, the Catholic Church would also favor one religion in the world, if it were Roman Catholicism. Assorted grand muftis and other true believers hold the same view. So, what is the objective here? It is religious tolerance, unification, is it that, or subversion of religious faith? Jane tells Insight that he looks forward to the day when religious people will no longer insist on a single truth. And um, the, uh, the um, organization in which Zane is active, in which he is one of the partners for the summit, takes it even further. The, act, the president, uh, Mr. Swing, he says, there will have to be a godly ceasefire, a temporary truce where the absolute exclusive, exclusive claims of each religion will be honored, but an agreed-upon neutrality will be exercised in terms of proselytizing, contemning, murdering, and dominating. These will not be tolerated in the religious, united religious zone. That's the plan. So you're going to see religion, if, if we understand anything about this Babylonian system and what Revelation 18 chapter is telling us here, we're going to see very plainly this develop, what final form it's going to take. I don't know, but I can tell you, the Bible talks about a martyrdom of saints, doesn't it? That means there are going to be many, many people who will not accept that. So we just said here that she's going to receive her plagues. Well, let's notice, uh, I just want to turn to Isaiah 47 here and, and point out a couple of things to you regarding this Remember, these, these Old Testament prophecies are the types now. And so as we read in Isaiah 47, verses 5 through 10, Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. You shall no longer be called the Lady of Kings. What did we, we just read here in Revelation 18? I sit a queen and am no widow and will see no sorrow. You're not going to sit there as a lady of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. It looks like it's shaping up, doesn't it? You showed them no mercy on the elderly. You laid your yoke very heavily. You said, I shall be a lady forever. Yeah. Isn't modern Babylon saying the same thing? They're not saying in that many words, but that's their viewpoint. That's their attitude. You see? I am a queen, am no widow, and will see no sorrow. So you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. So again, we see plainly what the Bible is pointing out here about what's going to take place at some time in the future involving what's going on in the world today. You need to have your eyes open. I want you to notice something here in Revelation. Let's begin here in verse number 11. We're reading here about the greatest trading system, the greatest global economy the world has ever seen. What does it say here? The merchants of the earth are going to weep and war or mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of the most precious wood, bronze, irons, and marble, cinnamon, incense, fragrance, fragrant oil, and frankincense, wine, uh, frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. You know what a number of the translations say here for the word bodies? It means slaves. The slaves and human lives. So what that seems to imply, that slavery is going to be a very active thing going on in this system. And that some will be used directly as slaves and others, their lives will just be taken over and they'll be controlled in some other manners. That's what it seems to imply. Well, what's going on in the world today? Well, here's a good example. Here are the hearings before the Subcommittee on Human Rights and Wellness of the Committee of the Government Reform House of Representatives on the 108th Congress. 
the ongoing tragedy of international slavery and human trafficking. Going on right now today, alive and well. Trafficking in human beings, mostly women and children, has become a global business and affects all countries. You know, I wondered when we first moved up here to Eugene back in the middle 70s, uh, we had just barely gotten here and there was a, a young woman, fairly young, and she was working at one of these motels over here on Coburg Road. Her husband was in the army overseas someplace. She went to work one day at the motel and never seen again. Never heard of her ever since. There was a woman working out in a um, uh, donut shop right on uh, Highway 99 toward the north end of town. And uh, she, she went to work one day and vanished. What happens to them? Well, there could be a number of things that happen to them. There was a very, very attractive uh, news lady up in, I think, in Iowa, one of the major, major cities in Iowa, and uh, she was seen on television every day, a very beautiful blonde woman, and uh, she went, got to go to work one morning, and all they found was her car door open, her purse lying on the floor in the parking lot. Never saw or heard of her again. What happens to them? Well, I don't know, but it makes you wonder because here's what it says. Researchers differ on the numbers of women trafficked. The United Nations reports estimate, estimate 4 million women have been trafficked from one country to another within countries, and the U.S. reports 700,000 to 2 million women and children internationally tra trafficked each year into the sex industry and for labor, with 50,000 in the United States. Going on, folks. All numbers, however, are preliminary. And uh, trafficking women and children is big business. The United, United Nations estimates that trafficking is a 5 to 7 billion U.S. dollar operation annually. And in contrast to penalties for drug and arms trafficking, the penalties for human tra trafficking are lower in many countries. Kidnapping. Kidnap women, deceive, deceive them. In some of these poor third world nations, the parents sell their children, sell their little girls. And they put them in houses of prostitution. That's what's going on in the world. I tell you, it's a pretty ugly place. But, you know, we don't see it all the time because um, we're not aware of it. But uh, there's a couple of texts here I wanted to read from um, the Old Testament. Um, I won't. Uh, I won't take the time to turn to them because my time is winding down here. But one of his, one is in Exodus twenty one sixteen, and the other is in Deuteronomy twenty four verse seven. What does it say? The penalty for kidnapping. It is a capital offense. Many of these crimes that are being done in the United States and the world today are capital offenses in God's eyes. How are people treated? It's a little slap on the wrist. Now, the most prevalent forms of sex trafficking are for prostitution, sex tourism, and mail-order bribe industries. Uh, bride industries. Unfortunately, you'd never know from many anti-traffic organizations that most women who are trafficked for exploitation in, prost in prostitution. And here's what's really interesting. You see, I'm reading here what we read in Revelation. It talks about this Babylonian system and all the economic parts of it, and here's, a, here's the parts of, of slaves and, and, and human lives. And uh, what do we read here? Being trafficked in an exploitive farm or factory work is incompatible with fundamental human rights and is harmful to those subjected to this form of trafficking. Dorchen Liebholt, director of one of the anti-trafficking um, organizations, says the harm is really... Is, is severe to women and girls trafficked in prostitution in, in brothels and repeatedly sex, uh, violated. And uh, also, as he points out, ignored is the fact that many women for bonded and domestic work concludes with them being sexually exploited. And these same governments and agencies, what is this Babylonian system doing? What does it say about here? These same governments and agencies are deliberately promoting a disconnect between trafficking and prostitution. They advocate the recognition of what they call voluntary prostitution as legitimate work, and even the recognition of trafficking as migration for sex work. 
They cater to it. They allow it. That's Babylon. That's the world in which we live today. Most of us don't see it. Because we're not exposed to this kind of thing. What are the factors promoting this uh, sex traffic? Women increasingly, here's one, I'm going to read just a few of the reasons here. They list a whole lot more, but just, just uh, some of the high spots. Women increasingly, increasingly poverty-driven women and children into situations for sexual exploitation. In other words, increasing poverty for both the women and the children. Some of those third world countries. Economic policies, ha-ha, uh -huh. what are we reading about here? Economic policies of international lending organizations that mandate structural adjustments in developing regions of the world, forcing countries to cut back on social services and employment, thus driving more and more women to seek income abroad. Who's a party to it? Babylon and its system. I tell you, we better realize how wicked this world really is. Next, globalization of the economy, which means globalization of sex industry. What do we read here in Revelation 18, verse 13? As it becomes an industry without borders, large and small-scale trafficking Networks operate across borders, actively recruiting girls and women, especially from villages, city streets, and transportation centers, hotels, airlines, and charter companies, often with direct and indirect government collusion. See? Often with direct or indirect government collusion and corruption. Are involved in the trafficking of women, for example, sex tourism. Yeah. You understand the facts of what this is saying here in the book of Revelation. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? I want to skip down out of verse number 23. There's a lot more I could say, but I'll just read something here in verse 23. The lamp, the light of a lamp shall shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall no more hurt in you anymore. For your merchants have been the great men of the earth. Yeah, we're not talking about local bankers down here. We're talking about the big, powerful banking firms, consortiums that control the money. We're talking about the various things I read to you in this report from this lady in the Acres magazine. That's what we're talking about. Great men of the earth, not the little local people. The big, powerful money magnates. Your, great, your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all nations were deceived. Sorcery, the Greek word pharmakon, and people apply it to drugs, but I think it's much broader than just the word pharmaceuticals we take for medicine. I think the word drugs includes all the drug drug trade, uh, heroin and uh, marijuana and cocaine and all this going on, which is one of the world's biggest industries today. This is the world. Now, do we realize it? So when you read this chapter here, Revelation 18, regarding Babylon, I think it should give you some real meaning and some real understanding when you get some of the facts and the details that show what's really going on behind the world, behind the scenes that most of us are not even aware of.